Would you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, is as we come now to the preaching of your word, Father, we asked that your spirit would be especially near to us all. Father, that your spirit would be near to me and speak your word through me, Father. There would be no error that comes from my lips. And if so, Father, it would go over the heads of those here. Father, we all here love your word. And, Father, we don't take this lightly. And as we open it, Lord, we claim your promise and we eagerly anticipate, Father, that your word will go forth and accomplish what you have sent it to do. Father, we know that in a, in a, a, a crowd this large, Father, there are many people here who are anticipating and, and experiencing joy of victory over sin, uh, joy and victory over illness, But, Father, we also know that there are those here who are struggling, Father, physically, struggling spiritually, struggling with sin. And, Father, that speaks to us all. And so now we ask that your word would go forth and mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. Father, this week we have experienced the gospel work Father, that has gone forth as we have held Vacation Bible School here. And Lord, we thank you for all the children that were here this week. And we pray, God, that through the lessons taught, through the words of the songs that we sang, Father, that the gospel has, t- has begun to take root, that a seed has been planted. We thank you for all the children from our community that was here this week. And we pray, God, that you would bless us to continue our relationship with them and in efforts to reach them and their families, Father, with the gospel. Father, I thank you for all those who work so hard to make that happen. And Father, even though we are all tired, Father, it is a good tired because we have expended ourselves in the work of the gospel, and we are thankful for that privilege. And now, God, as we open your word, bless us in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9, the verses we'll be looking at this morning are verses 24 through 27. We will finish chapter 9 today. The title of the sermon this morning is Running to Win, Running to Win. And our key words for you worshipers in training are race, prize, and self-control. First Corinthians chapter 9, I'm going to start reading in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. These verses this morning that I just read form a bridge between Paul's self-defense in chapter 9 
and a return in chapter 10 to a subject that he began to deal with in chapter 8. You remember in chapter 8, he was calling upon the Corinthians to correct their thinking about their presence in the idol temples and their partaking of the cultic meals there. Remember that they were trying to justify their actions along theological lines in chapter 8 by claiming that these so-called gods were not real at all and that there was only one true God. They also tried to justify their actions by attacking Paul, by attacking his authority and his credibility in chapter 9. Paul defends his authority in the first verses of chapter 9, and then he sets out to show that he has certain rights, namely the right to be supported financially, that he has not claimed for himself. And all of this he has done, as he says in verse 23, for the sake of the gospel and with a goal to see people saved. To those under the law, as we saw last week, he would live as one under the law. To those outside the law, he would live as one outside the law. He accommodated himself in ways that did not compromise the gospel itself in order to take away potential stumbling blocks from his target audience. And so in verses 24 through 27, he wants to drive home this lesson that he's been putting forth to us one last time with an illustration. And if you read about the life of the Apostle Paul, if you've read through all of his letters and seen his life, especially in the book of Acts, no doubt you are struck, as I am, with the godliness of this man, with his self-sacrifice, with his ability to put others above himself. And if you're like me, you're convicted and, you're, and you wonder, how did he do these things? How was he able to do the things that he did? What was his secret? Well, I believe these verses here that we're going to look at this morning explain to us and, and to tell us what his secret was, and it's really no secret at all. And so this, in these verses this morning, they break down rather simply into three parts. The first thing we're going to look at in verse 24 is an exhortation that Paul gives the Corinthians. And then in verse 25, he's going to remind them about something, and us as well. And then in verses 26 through 27, he puts forth himself as an example, and, and through that example, he will explain why he's able to do the things that he's claimed he's done. And so let's look at these together. Verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one received the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul focuses his illustration here on something that would, be, would have been very familiar to the Corinthians. There was something called the Isthmian Games. In the ancient world, second, they were second in importance to the Olympic Games. You had the Olympic Games that were, that were the precursor of what we have today. But then second behind that was called the Isthmian Games. And they were held on about 10 miles away from Corinth. Remember, Corinth was in that Isthmian Peninsula between the northern and the southern part of Greece. And so that's where they were held some 10 miles away, and they were held every other year. And so they attracted numerous athletes and spectators from around the world. And no doubt when Paul was in Corinth during those 18 months, uh, he witnessed these games. And when, they, when Paul says here, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? That word race there is the Greek word stadion, and it, that sounds familiar to us. It's where we get our word stadium or a race course. And so what he's really saying there is, do you not know that in a race course, in a stadium, all the runners run? He's beginning to focus them on this, on this, this, this everyday occurrence that they, they've come to know, these games. He's saying, do you not know when these games are going on and there are all these people, all these athletes are there to participate, 
All of them are there to run. But he says, but only one receives the prize. There's only one winner. I mean, that goes without saying. You don't receive the prize for just showing up and playing. It's not the YMCA. Sorry. There's only one winner. The one who wins the race is the winner. And so that's what Paul is laying out here. Do you not know that when all of these runners gather, that when they're participating in this race, they all run, but there's only one winner. There's only one who receives the prize. And so, but I want you to be careful here. We need to be careful that the main point of what Paul is teaching in these verses this morning, he's not, fo- he's not getting us to focus on the prize itself. Now, he will talk about this prize and what it is, but that's not why he's writing these verses. That's not his focus. He's also not saying that we are in competition with one another because he's going to compare this with, uh, with the race of life, the Christian ministry itself. But he, and he's saying that we're all in that race, but we're not competing against one another. I'm not running with Earl and Sam, and I'm not tripping Sam up to try to get to the finish line before he does because I want to gain that prize. We're all metaphorically in, the, in our own individual races of life and ministry, and so that's what Paul is focusing on. He's not saying that we compete with one another to gain this prize. His main point really is what he's getting at when these verses is to focus, is to insist that the Christian life involves and requires self-control. The Christian life involves and requires, in fact, demands self-control. So how did Paul do it? How did, to accomplish living for the gospel and for others, he had to have self-control. That was, one, that was one part of how he was able to have victory in his life. He had self-control. And so he says there, then in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. You know this. This is an everyday occurrence in life in these games. So run that you may obtain it. Now he's beginning to bring the metaphor into them. He's changing the metaphor from the physical to the spiritual. He's saying, so run that you may obtain it. And this, this, this phrase here is, is in the indicative in the Greek, and that's really a command. He's not, he's not giving an option. He's not giving good advice here. He's giving a strict command saying, run that you may obtain it. Run to win. And so he's giving them an exhortation about their attitude in life, their attitude. He's saying, Corinthians, you have not been running to win. The things that I have been talking to you about, especially in this realm of liberties and in your participation in these idol temples and these idol sacrifices, you have not been running to win. You need a new perspective. You need a change in attitude. And so Paul starts out this section here by, lit, by putting forth this command by saying, you know that in a race all the runners run, and you know that only one receives the prize. That's a given. That's a, that's a truth that we work off here. And so he's saying, run this race that you may be able to obtain the prize. Do it. It's a command. So Paul is exhorting them to run. And then he gives us a reminder in verses 25. In verse 25, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so the first thing he says there, every athlete exercises self-control. That word there is a Greek word, agonizomai. And the reason I'm telling you these Greek words is because they sound familiar to words that we've got from them. What does agonizomai sound like? Agonize. And that's exactly where that word comes from. It means to contend, struggle with difficulties and dangers, 
to endeavor with strenuous zeal to obtain something. And so that when you're agonizing about something, you know what that feeling is like. You're putting everything you've got into it. And so he's saying every athlete agonizes, uh, exercises self-control in all things. He says you don't just show up on the day of the race and expect to win. That's common sense. You must prepare for it with rigorous training. In fact, there was a requirement in the Isthmian Games that said you had to train for 10 months prior to the event or you would be disqualified if you showed up without that training. And so there was rigorous, demanded training that had to go forth before you could even participate in these games. And so he says every athlete exercises self-control in a figure drawn from, from athletes who in preparing themselves for the games abstain from unwholesome food, wine, and sexual indulgence. And so we've seen this before. We know that anything about, if you know anything about the sports world, you know that these, these guys, these men and these women, they put forth everything they have and they have to exercise self-control and to go through rigorous training in order to prepare themselves for whatever event they may be participating in. He says, we exercise self-control in all things. In saying all things, Paul evokes the images of a lengthy, training, arduous drill, proper diet, and sufficient rest for the athlete. I mean, when, we, when, the, when the Olympics are going on, we know that these, these athletes that are participating in these games, I mean, that's, all, that's almost all they do. Once these games are over, they, they immediately begin preparing themselves for the next event four years later. And even before they get to their first event, they've, they've invested years and years and years of rigorous training in all things. And they have to rearrange their entire lives around this goal of being able to win this prize, to win whatever event they're in. And so in order to be successful, an athlete must exercise self-control. Tiger Woods may not have much discipline and self-control over his private life, but he didn't become the number one golfer in the world and arguably the best ever without discipline and self-control in his training in, in the game of golf. And if you know anything about the man, he trains rigorously in the game of golf. And that's how he's become the greatest. And so Paul is giving us a simple reminder here. The first, in verse 24, he gives us an exhortation, run that you may obtain the prize. And he gives us a reminder that as you prepare to run, as you think about running to gain this prize, you must understand a simple truth that every athlete must exercise self-control in all things in order to accomplish that prize. So why do they do this? Why do they go through all this training? They do it, at the end of verse 25, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So what's this stuff, this perishable and imperishable wreath? In the Isthmian Games, there were many different events, and the winner of each event would receive the victor's crown. It was usually a headpiece that was woven together with branches with some sort of leaves, maybe laurel leaves on it. The crown represented the fame and accomplishment and maybe even some financial gain to the victor. And all of the winners would receive this. It's just like the Olympic Games whenever they would receive the gold and the silver and the bronze. And nobody wants to win the gold, I mean the bronze and the silver, right? They're there to win the gold. And so that's the reason he's elevated to the top step in the Olympic game when he receives the gold. And so the reason that they go through all of this is in, in those days was to receive this perishable wreath, this crown that they would wear on their heads, and all the fame and accomplishment that would go with that was, was represented in that wreath. 
Dwayne Thomas, who played for the Dallas Cowboys in the early 70s, was asked by a reporter just before he was to play in the Super Bowl what it was like to play in the ultimate game. His response was, if it's the ultimate game, why will they play it again next year? It's a good question. But you see behind that, he's, he's, he's recognizing even the futility of the pomp and the fame and the accomplishment that goes behind what they're trying to accomplish. Now, no doubt, he played his heart out in that game to win. But he understood that, that, that the fame that comes with that is fleeting. It's perishable. It's not going to last. Can anyone remember who won the Super Bowl three years ago or ten years ago? And if you can, I need to talk to you because you've got too many statistics in your head. But, but no, we don't because we don't care, right? We might remember last year. I, I, really, I don't even think I can remember who won it last year. But I'm not really into to, to professional football that much. But whether it be NASCAR or baseball or anything, these things are fleeting, right? The ultimate crown of the, whatever sport you're playing is only going to last so long. It's not going to last forever. And so Paul says, that's why they do it. That's why they participate and they go through all that rigorous training to prepare for these games because they want to, they want to receive this perishable wreath and it's only, and it's fleeting. It's not going to last long. It's going to perish. The, the, the crown with the thorn, with the, um, with the leaves and all the flowers on, it's going to fade. It's going to, it's going to wilt. It's going to die. It's going to, it's, it's going to just disintegrate. It's not going to last. And he says, that's why they do it. But now he's going to begin to turn it. He's going to say, but why do we do it? But we, he says, we train for an imperishable wreath. The question is, what motivates us as believers? What motivates our behavior? The prize that, the prize that we win is not perishable. It's imperishable. It's eternal. We desire to please the one who has redeemed us who has saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul here, in, in, in contrasting from the lesser to the greater, is saying, which has greater significance, a perishable crown or an imperishable crown? It's a rhetorical question. We know what the answer is. Which, which deserves greater sacrifice, greater commitment, and greater loyalty? I think the answer is clear. What we accomplish in Christian ministry lasts forever. It lasts forever. And so Paul is saying here, as he gives them a reminder that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And he's building to the crescendo of what he's going to say in the next two verses. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. The wreath that we're after, the race that we're in, the training that we are involved in that is required of us is for something greater than what these athletes that we see in the world taking part in. And so he lays out himself as an example in verses 26 and 27. So he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Verse 26, he gives us two illustrations from the games, two different type of events, a runner and a boxer. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He says, he uses that word aimlessly. What does that mean? He, has, he says he has, I do not run as if I don't have a goal or a purpose. 
You know, when a, when, a, when a runner, keeping with our illustration here, when these runners and these participa- participants in these games would show up, as I said, they have gone through many, many months and years of training. And so they have an aim. They have a focus. They have a reason for being there. That's to win that event. And so Paul says, likewise, I do not run aimlessly. I have a focus. I have a goal. I have a purpose for living. And he also says there, I do not box as one beating the air. He uses the image of the boxing realm. And we know, what does it mean to box there? It's like shadow boxing. You're just out there swinging into air and not hitting anything, right? Whenever the, the bell goes off for a boxing match and the two guys walk to the middle, what do they do? They start pounding each other's head, right? That's what you do. You're supposed to knock his block off before he knocks yours off. And so Paul is saying, I'm not one of these boxers who when the bell rings, I'm just going to go over here in this other corner and just start doing this. While that other guy comes over here and knocks my head off. I have an aim. My purpose is to knock him down before he gets me. And so I run. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I'm not a shadow boxer. And so he has a goal and a purpose and a reason for living. And so there's where our exhortation, there's where our challenge is in life, is that are we running aimlessly? Is our life aimless? Are we boxing as a shadow boxer? Why are you here? Have you asked yourself that question lately? Why do you live? Why do you exist? Why are you here? Why am I here? Are we here for our own pleasures, our own exaltation, our own to gain whatever? Or are we here to serve others, to put others' pleasures above ourselves? Paul was a very clear example of that, right? I mean, he's gone through and laid out all these liberties that he set aside that he had perfect right to take part in. And so he, he did that with a purpose and a focus for the sake of the gospel to see others saved. He had a reason for living. And so he says, look at my life. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. That was his aim. And what is his behavior? In verse 27, he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. I discipline my body. That's a very graphic word in the Greek. It literally means to beat black and blue, to cause to bruise and to blacken the eye. That's what Paul is saying he does to himself. He's saying, I blacken my body. I beat my body into submission to keep it under control. He pictures himself as a boxer in a boxing Match. He's not a shadow boxer, but he's also not fighting someone else either. Who is his opponent? Himself. Himself. He's talking about he fights himself. He has to beat his own body. Now, he does, he's not talking literally. Or he's not saying that he goes outside and just gets in a fight with himself and starts pounding away. He's talking metaphorically here that he disciplines his body by buffeting his body, by crucifying his flesh. Paul understands something that's very crucial, and it's very crucial for us to understand. He understands that his own flesh is his greatest hindrance in life. Do you understand that? Do you understand that we, that we, battle, we battle spiritual forces in the heavenlies? There's, the Bible says that. Satan is a very real evil. He exists. His demons exist. But our greatest foe, your greatest foe and my greatest foe is my own flesh and your own flesh. And that's what Paul understood very clearly. He says, I discipline my body to keep it under control. It literally means to enslave it. Paul is saying, 
that I have enslaved my own body. And usually, unfortunately, the case for us is, is that we're, we're enslaved to our bodies, right? It's whatever our bodies say, that's what we do. Whatever our bodies crave, that's what we give them. We never overcome our bodies. Our bodies overcome us. That's the complete opposite of what Paul is saying here. He said, I don't do that. I beat my body into submission. I overcome it. He says in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's talking about his life, his ministry. His focus was to see people saved. And he says, I endure everything. Literally means to suffer. I suffer in this life. And if you understand the things that Paul went through, he suffered greatly. He was beat and shipwrecked and left for dead, imprisoned, many other things. And he endured all that for the sake of the elect. And he also says in 1 Timothy 4, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of, a, is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You see him, he's contrasting to the same thing he's doing over in 1 Corinthians 9. Right? There's training that needs to happen. How was he able to endure everything for the sake of the elect? Because he just decided to do it? No. He trained himself for godliness, as he's telling Timothy to do here. Because he says that not only does it have value now, it has value for the life to come, eternal value. But he also tells Timothy in verse 16 of that same chapter, chapter 4, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy was a young pastor. And he's telling Timothy here, you have a charge to oversee these people, to teach these people, to shepherd these people, but your first focus must be to watch out for yourself. Your own flesh is your worst enemy. Keep a close watch on yourself. Very close watch on yourself. Give yourself no quarter. Give your, don't give yourself an inch because your flesh will grab it, right? And run with it. That's how he's able to endure because he's watching himself. He's, a, he's aware that his own flesh is his greatest enemy. And so he has to discipline his own body. He has to beat it into submission. When Christ says, pick up your, pick up your cross, that's not just some little piece of wood that we just pick up and throw on our backs and go about our day as if there's nothing there. You have to picture the weight of that thing dragging you down, forcing you down and having to hold yourself up with everything you've got and walk through life, walk through your day. And all of the death that that, that, that represents. And your flesh will not like it. It will say, throw it aside. So Paul says... I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Why? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What does he mean here? Well, there's different opinions over what he's talking about here. John MacArthur says that Paul did not want to spend his life preaching the requirements to others and then be disqualified for not meeting the requirements himself. Many believers start the Christian life with enthusiasm and devotion. They train carefully for a while, but soon tire of the effort and then break training. 
Before long, they are disqualified from being effective witnesses. So MacArthur is saying here that it's about your, your service in the, in the church, that you're going to be disqualified from service and from being a good witness. One possibility. Another possibility is, is he talking about potential losses of reward on the, at the judgment seat of Christ? We all know that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the end, right? Believers are going to answer for, their, for what they've done in the body. So the Bible tells there's going to be some reward in that. There's, there's mystery. I don't know what that means. I don't know how that's going to be worked at, out. But some people believe that's what he's talking about here, that we're going to possibly lose some reward at the judgment seat of Christ if we're disqualified. But could it be here that he's talking about something much more serious? Could it be that after preaching to others and talking to others about the Christian life, you yourself don't share one day in those everlasting blessings of salvation. You are not a believer at all. Could it be that that's what he's saying, that you could be disqualified in that way, that you were never a believer at all? In other words, when someone is unwilling to live a self-disciplined life for the sake of the gospel, when someone has no commitment to eternal things, they call their very share of these things into question. John Piper says about this phrase, God has called Paul to preach the gospel. Whether he does or not is evidence of his living relationship to Christ. It is evidence of whether he has been born of God and given a new heart of love to Christ. And therefore, what hangs on Paul's running in the path of obedience and his fighting the fight of faith is the reality of his own, of his own standing in grace, his own participation in the gospel. If he quit running, if he said, I've had enough of this life of service, I'm through with following the path of obedience to my heavenly call, I'll try to hang on to Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, but I'm done with doing what he says. If Paul quit like that and never came back, he would be lost. He would not get the prize of salvation. He would be disqualified from the race and sent away in shame like a sprinter guilty of unlawful steroids. The best evidence, perhaps, that this is what Paul means is the use of the word disqualified in 2 Corinthians 13.5. It's the same Greek word as here, where that verse says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you are disqualified? The word is exactly the same one as here in 1 Corinthians 9.27. To be disqualified means that Christ is not in you. The race has been run in vain. It was a sham, end quote. Some other instances where this word is used is in Romans 1.28. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind, that's the word, to what ought not to be done. 2 Timothy 3.8 Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified, same word, regarding the faith. And so you see what he's saying here, that when Paul says that the danger is, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified should be disqualified, he's saying literally that he, would, he could be proven to be false. He could be proven to be that he was never a believer at all. And I believe that's what he's saying here. 
Now, that begs the question, doesn't Paul know that he's saved? Is he somehow lacking assurance now? I think he does know he's saved. But he also knows that if anyone forsakes the gospel, if anyone forsakes Christ, if anyone walks away from the truth in a final sense, they were never saved no matter what they ever believed about themselves. Galatians 1.8, he says, But even if we, even if we, he's including himself, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He included himself in that admonition. Even if you hear me, the apostle that, found, that planted your church, the one that you love dearly, even if you hear me preaching some other gospel than the one I have given you, then let me be accursed. So he's recognizing that if he begins to walk contrary to what he teaches, to walk contrary to the gospel, then he's proving that he never was in the gospel to start with. And so that, that puts forth a, a challenge for us. Are you running to win or is your race a sham? Because that admonition that Paul put forth in 2 Corinthians 13.5 is a very strong one. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Put yourself under the microscope. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? If Jesus Christ is in you, then what will be true of you? You will look somewhat like Jesus Christ. You will not be Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ will be working His grace through your life, and there will be some difference, right? We're new creations in Christ. The old has gone away. The new has come. And so when a person is saved, there is evidence of it. And Paul is saying, you put yourself under the microscope and you look at the gospel, you look at Jesus' teachings and His precepts and you, you lay them upon your life and you look at them as you do in a mirror. James says, looking into the mirror. And if you don't see any resemblance, then something's wrong. And you're, you potentially and probably, possibly, may not be a Christian at all. It's a very real danger because of the false gospel that's being proclaimed all over this country. And so the admonition is there is to examine our lives to see if our race is a real race or if it's a sham. And so I want to make a couple of observations and then we'll, then we'll end. First, those who are most competitive and most committed are those who care most about their sport. We're going to use the same analogy that Paul is using, this, the sports world. Those who are most competitive and most committed in their sports are those who care most about their sports. Where there is passion, there is commitment. Where there is love, there is willingness. What does your level of passion about the things of God say about your faith? If we believe what we say we believe and we compare what we say to our commitment to the things we say we believe, what does it tell us? We say we believe that Jesus is coming again. We say we believe that the things that are seen are temporal and the things that are unseen are eternal. We say we believe that we are pilgrims passing through this life and this world is not our own. We say that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We say we believe these things and many more. But what does our commitment to these things say? 
What does, it, what does your commitment to these things say of you? When we believe that Jesus is coming again, that's the hope, right? That's our hope. This is not it. Our hope is that Christ is going to return and bring, him to, bring us to Himself in His eternal home in heaven. That's our hope. Do we live like that? Do we live with that hope in our lives? That's our commitment. When we say that we're pilgrims passing through this life and this world is not our own, do we live like we do love this world and it is our own? That's a difficult thing. There's a lot in this world to love. A lot of things to draw our attentions away from Christ. And so our commitment should be that we live out our belief that we are pilgrims. This is not our world. The things of this world are not ours. And we say that we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We say that. We preach that. We proclaim that. In our mission statements, in our covenant, do we live that way? Are we committed to seeing people saved? Are we committed to taking that message out to the people in this community? Where is your commitment? And so if we are committed to these things, we will, have, we will show that commitment by how much we care and love these things. Secondly, in athletics, those who do not care as much about a particular sport as you or someone else does, not, does cannot relate to your passion for it. I think this probably if the guys that we've seen, guys who love football, they love to watch football on Sunday or Saturday and your wife doesn't love it. She always wants you to do something at that time, right? <laughs> it's time to cut the grass on Saturday when George is playing Florida. No, 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 you don't understand. That can't happen. But, but, but that's what he's talking about. Because there, there's, she doesn't share the same commitment, doesn't share the same love for that particular event. And so they don't understand your passion for it. And so for us, when you talk about the things of Christ, what sort of passion should there be? Does the world look at your passion and mine and say, I don't understand it. I don't understand you. I just don't get you. You make no sense to me. The things that you love, the things that you do, the things that you say, I don't get it. Is that what the world is saying about us? They should. If we're running the race as Paul is here describing, then a lost and dying world won't know what to make of it because you cannot relate to a passion that you don't share. And so the world obviously does not share a passion for Jesus Christ and for His gospel. And so if they look at us and they see something different in us, then that tells us that we do have a love and a passion for Christ and His gospel. And so the question for us is, what does our life say about us? I have another quote from John Piper. It's kind of lengthy, but I think it drives home the point very well. He says, now, all this is tremendously relevant to the mission of the church and your part in it. There are days of suffering ahead for the confessing church in America. The price of faithfulness to God's word in a hostile society and worldly church is increasing almost daily. Not only that, the price of taking the love of Christ to the unreached peoples of the world in the midst of centuries of satanic darkness will not be without persecution and martyrdom. 
And one thing is certain. The human body will say no to this suffering. The body will say, I will not pay the price. Imagine Paul ready to enter a hostile town with the gospel. He has been beaten four times already with 39 lashes during his ministry. He knows it could happen again. For a moment, he wavers in his race when the body says, No, I won't go. It's foolish to go. It's painful to go. No. Then Paul calls to mind the promise that the one who loses his life for Christ will find it. He calls on the Holy Spirit for help. He considers the glory of God and the salvation of lost sinners. And he turns, as it were, and hits his body right in the face and says, You be quiet and submit yourself now as an instrument of righteousness. You are going in there for Christ and for his kingdom. The same thing is true on a lesser level for how we care for each other in the church. We will not love each other the way Christ loved us until we learn to buffet the body the way he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. His body cried out, No, I will not be crucified. And Jesus wrestled with his body to the point that blood dropped from his face and he made his body a servant of love. Unless we learn that kind of self-denial in this day of self-gratification, we will drift away from the painful pathway of love and away from the costly course of missionary obedience and God will bypass us on his way to triumph in the world. But if we keep our eyes on the prize, if we exult in the truth that Christ has already obtained us by his own blood, if we bank on the promise of his help and his sustaining grace, then we will run with power in the path of love. The mission will be completed and people will see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. End quote. You understand what he's saying? Our bodies don't want us to do the things that we are called to do. The world does not want us to do these things. And we have to speak to these things. We have to speak to our body and say, I will not listen to you. I will not listen to your foolishness. I will serve Christ. And how did Paul end? How did it end for Paul? 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who loved His appearing. Paul finished well. He finished the race because he kept his focus on God and he was working for an imperishable crown. He did not focus his efforts on the perishable things of this world. He focused his efforts on the gospel. And finally, in Hebrews, the writer says in chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran the race. And as we run the race, it's not, in our, it's not in our strength that we run this race. That's the glorious truth. We don't have to worry about we're going to fail because He's going to be there with us. If we're putting Him first, first and foremost in our life, if we're looking to Him, 
for the strength to run this race. He will see us to the end. We need endurance. You need endurance. I need endurance. This life is difficult. The struggle with sin is difficult. We want to give up, right? I want to give up sometimes. I want to say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to serve this way. I'm not going to be around a bunch of screaming kids in VBS running all over these buildings and doing all the things that kids do because I'm tired. But you have to say, no, that's foolish, body. You will not speak that way. You will not rule over me this day. These kids running around this room, are we are planting a seed in their lives with the gospel. And we endure hardship now. We may not see any fruit from our efforts, but God is pleased. He has used us to plant that seed. And if He is willing to provide the increase, then, he, then we will participate in that. We will receive the blessings of that. So God is telling us here, Paul is telling us here, are you running to win? Are you running in your life to win? May God help us to be that type of church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul to someone to look to, Father, who endured well, who finished the race well. And Father, we know that when we read about these people in the Bible, Paul or Moses or all these people, that we should not elevate them to some super saint level. Father, we know that they were men just like we are. They were saved by grace and they were carried along in their service to you by your grace and by your Holy Spirit. And we have that same power at work in us. Help us, Father, to run well. Give us endurance. Help us to slay our flesh, to talk to ourselves, to argue with ourselves when we do not want to serve Christ and to buffet our bodies. And we ask, God, that you would do this for us so that we could be a light and for this community, for your glory that we would see people saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.